Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian. We are knee-deep or neck-deep, I'm not sure which, in The Sin Against the Holy Spirit, a section which begins on page 105. And it looks like we had progressed and stopped somewhere right around the close of page 107. So maybe it would help to get a little more get a running start here on question 213 and then jump back into it before we transition on page 109 to the sacraments of the New Testament in general. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so question 213, at the bottom of page 106, is thus. But how can the sin against the Holy Spirit that is unforgivable be simply yet uh, truly and thoroughly described? The simplest and safest way is that which Augustine pointed out to us and himself followed, for he noted that since that sin is called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it is committed against the ministry, gifts, and works of the Holy Spirit. That's the key, if you recall, from two weeks ago, our last session together. The sin against the Holy Spirit isn't unforgivable because it's more grave than other sins. Even good, solid theology of the Trinity would show otherwise. A blasphemy against the Father or a blasphemy against the Son, is that any worse than a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? No, we'd say those are all... Because they are all, each person is equally God, then all of those sins are equally evil. What then is the nature of the sin or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Not so much his person as his work, his office. So we talked about this, that where someone commits the sin against the Holy Spirit... They know and are convinced in their hearts that this is the work of God, this is the work of his Holy Spirit, as was the case with the Pharisees who saw the demons that Jesus was casting out, and they knowingly, willingly lie to themselves and to others, blaspheming the operation of the Holy Spirit and assigning that operation of the Holy Spirit to the operation of the unholy spirit. So to put that in plain English, again, as you round this out, If someone knowingly, willingly falls away from the word in in such a way that they know it, they understand it, they believe it, and they fall away, how are you going to reconvert such a person? Because if you come and you convict them of sin, that's one aspect of the Holy Spirit. They say, I know what you're doing, you're just manipulating me and I don't believe any of that nonsense anymore. Or you convict of righteousness. You say, well, all your sins, even your apostasy, can be forgiven in Christ. And they go, yeah, 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 I know that inside and out. I can teach you about it, and I reject it. How is such a person ever going to be 
saved? How are they going to regain faith? How are they going to be forgiven? It's that category of committing sin leading unto death. That's the end of John's epistle. Or um, We looked at Hebrews 6 that describes this as well, where the reign of the gospel, the, the precipitation of the word and the sacraments, falls upon the soil of one's heart, and all it does is produces thorns and thistles. How then can one ever be recovered from that state? Okay, so that is probably as good as we can get for a reintroduction to the sin against the Holy Spirit. If we just skip to the next paragraph on one of... Yes, please. One of the the things what you're just describing, I reflect back on some of the work I used to do, and where that would sometimes come up would be a Jewish person who was... And I think the danger is that we don't recognize what might be happening here. There really is nothing you can do. Mm-hmm. Right. You yeah. Because um, I can remember both those examples you gave of a person in particular who would use that strategy with me. Wanted to know, looked very open, mm-hmm. wanted to know, but then always said, well, we really think alike, which there is no... Mm-hmm. way to really argue with that because that's what that person believed and what I wasn't grasping is there wasn't very little I was going to be able to do with that person you know mm-hmm. you just kept thinking it's your failure or you're not good enough to present what God is put on your heart you know something like that and I think sometimes it's just a matter of this is not something you're going to be able to interfere with because it's very spiritual and above your my paper Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's true. It's worth um, looking back very quickly, and you don't have to do this necessarily. I can do it for us. Uh, Matthew twelve thirty two is what we looked at before. I, I want to show you two different contexts in which the sin against the Holy Spirit arises biblically, because I think there is a distinction to be made and one that your comments touch upon. So at Matthew 12, if I can find it here. Yeah, listen once more to the context of Matthew 12, which we covered some weeks ago. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, or by the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Then, knowing their thoughts, and I'll try not to give you the extended version here, but he says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit the Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So here, the Pharisees are those that we would just generally class or categorize as non-Christians. But they're convicted, they see with their eyes, they know in their heart the truth and the reality of the working of the Holy Spirit, and they blaspheme against it. So I think it's safe to say on this basis that one category would be unbelievers, as described, committing the sin against the Holy Spirit. 
Now, if you turn to First uh, John five and do open up here, because we haven't looked at this yet. This is going to be more apropos or more fitting of those not outside the church, the way we would look at the Pharisees, but those inside the church, and here I mean the visible church. (coughs) The context of 1 John 5 being very different, but the thematic element of the sin against the Spirit being the same. So at verse 16 of 1 John chapter 5, if anyone sees his brother, so that's language reserved for a Christian, committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. So this is intercessory prayer on behalf of one another. And when we see each other sinning, instead of running and telling someone else, we should Pray that God would forgive them and not hold that sin against them. He shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. So there's the first category is sin that does not lead to death. Which is probably enough to scramble the eggs of most, most Lutheran minds this day and age. But it's too bad. It's what the scriptures say. There is sin that doesn't lead to death. Then what does he say next? There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. So there is a sin that leads to death, and there is a sin that we shouldn't intercede. What's the nature of that sin? If they despise God and all the means through which he would intercede, how can you pray that God would intercede? God, please... Please bring them to repentance through your law. You already know they despise the law. God, please send them the message of forgiveness. They know the message of forgiveness and they outrightly reject it. So these would be examples of sins that lead to death. And there is no intercession. I do not say that one should pray for that. Then look at verse 17. All um from dikaios is like righteousness, so unrighteousness. All unrighteousness or wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So here would also be a biblical sedes or seat of doctrine where if you were looking for mortal or venial taught in the scriptures, that distinction, here would be a place. Here would be a very biblical way of talking about mortal and venial. Now, that might be different than how we talk about it in a larger, systematic context. It's fine. But here, native to the text, native to the scripture, is this distinction between mortal and venial. Okay, so this would be then those inside the church. Now, whether true believers or who have fallen away or unbelievers, you know, that's not specified. But there are those outside the church and those inside the church that sadly do blaspheme against the Holy Spirit and commit this sin. Okay, so then back to 107 in Chemnitz's text. 
And we'll look at that first full paragraph and just run through this again very briefly. I think we did commentary on it last week, just to bring us back up to speed. Chemnitz writes, And from this the ancients drew useful and salutary doctrines, warnings, and exhortations, namely that not all sins that are committed against the ministry and operation of the Holy Spirit are by that token unforgivable. For many of those who have resisted the Holy Spirit and have grieved and vexed him have later been converted and saved by the grace of God. So it is just because we're going to say biblically and define biblically the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a blasphemy against his office and the means of grace doesn't mean that every instance of blaspheming these things necessarily is the sin against the Holy Spirit. That's a difficult distinction, maybe, uh, to grasp, but one that is nevertheless evident, as Chemnitz is pointing out, because within the scripture, there are those who were Christians and fell away and were restored again. Once more, and I think there's comforting words here for anyone who might fear that they've committed this sin or fallen afoul of this, For many of those who have resisted the Holy Spirit and have grieved and vexed him have later been converted and saved by the grace of God. Yet by and large, the sins by which one resists the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit are much more serious and dangerous than other sins. And that for this reason, that we can be set free from other sins by the power of the Holy Spirit, Namely, when he, through his ministry and operation, arouses and kindles true repentance and faith in our hearts, by which we obtain forgiveness of sins. But as long as those who resist the ministry of the Holy Spirit and his work persist in that stubbornness, no way to obtain forgiveness of sins can be open to them. And this is why, I mean, this is exactly why pastors care so much about people attending church every week. It's not because full pews make me look good. I don't really... I'm past the stage of looking good in just about every way. I'm not concerned about that. I'm not concerned about anything other than the souls of people. And what happens is, so you've got, you've got sins that you've committed, all right? And then you need to know that those sins are forgiven. You need to have that word of the law that convicts you, the Holy Spirit convicting your sins. You need to have that word of the gospel convicts you of the righteousness of Christ credited to you. You need to have that conscience cleansed within you. You need to have that new heart created by God within. You need that for the health of your faith, for your ability to be in the faith and to die in the faith, etc. When you cut yourself off from the means of grace, it's like a, it's like cutting off the waters so that they can't even get to you. It's like cutting off the forgiveness that you need for all the other sins. So you go, I'm not going to go to church. That's not that big of a deal. You've just cut off the, the, the water supply that's going to quench your thirst. You've just cut off the blood supply to that limb. It's, not, you, it's a sin that means you can't, have, you can't receive that present tense for powerful forgiveness of God for all your other sins. So it's a sin that facilitates and retains all those other sins and all the poison that they've uh, wrought within your soul. That's where 
you also see a layering of sins in this respect, the sin against the Holy Spirit, that even those, those sins that aren't properly a sin against the Holy Spirit but are in the ballpark, despising his word and sacraments, are of a much more serious and dangerous degree than uh, your everyday sins because your everyday sins don't cut you off from the forgiveness that God has for you. Okay, so that's the point Chemnitz is making, and I'm simply restating his point and expanding upon it, not trying to say anything new here myself, um, but then just trying to, you know, when you talk about pastoral care, ordinary pastoral care is the divine service. That's what pastoral care is. Extraordinary, outside of the ordinary, is what we do not in divine service for people. So there's ordinary pastoral care, which is the divine service, and extraordinary, which is that we do outside of the divine service. All right, last few lines then here in this paragraph on 107. Chemnitz finishes up this way. Moreover, the sins that oppose the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit are listed by the ancients in this order that we may learn to avoid and beware of them. So again, I think, I think it's safe to say that Chemnitz is interpreting this broadly, and as he states overtly here, he's drawing on the church fathers, the ancients of the church. So these may or may not be sins against the Holy Spirit per se, but that aside, they're all in the neighborhood. They're all in the same ballpark, so to speak. One, presumption regarding the mercy of God or regarding impunity to sin. For example, when someone relying on mercy sins freely, falsely persuaded that he will not lose his salvation, though he impudently continues indefinitely in sins without repentance and conversion and perishes in his stubbornness. Two, obstinacy. When a man with a hard and impenitent heart rejects and despises exhortations to repentance and admonitions from the word of God, in obstinate malice, willing neither to hear nor to obey, but rather the more he is admonished, the more he is hardened and made worse. Likewise, when he does not acknowledge sins as sins, but rather excuses, defends, and glories in them, Three, attack on acknowledged truth when someone who knows the acknowledged truth of the divine word and knowingly violates, injures, and opposes conscience and in Pharisaic hatred ascribes the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil. Four, despair if one altogether despairs of the grace of God and his salvation, no matter how much it be offered to him in Christ through the word and sealed through the sacraments. Five, envy of brotherly grace when someone out of ill will and violent hatred envies his brother or envies his neighbor and brother, the grace of God, the gifts of the Holy Spirit and salvation in Christ. So to put that shortly, when you wish that someone would go to hell. 
All right, let's pause there. Um, well, no, never mind. Sorry, let's do six. It doesn't look like it's connected. Final impenitence, when a man obstinately persisting in sins dies without conversion and repentance. So, I, I mean, again, we've drawn on the example of David and Bathsheba. It's very frequently drawn on in the tradition of this conversation. But imagine, I mean, it's a horrific thought, but imagine that in the process of David's scheming to have Uriah murdered, he had died then. Is he in a converted state? Almost certainly not. I mean, we leave final judgment to God, but the indications are not good. And that it would be a good example of this final point of final impenitence when a man obstinately persisting in sins dies without conversion and repentance. Okay, so we can leave that be. I'll, um, if you have any thoughts, comments, questions about any of these six points, happy to discuss those with you, but I'll leave it be just to pause for that. And then um, if there are none or after we're finished, we'll, we'll go on to Kenneth's concluding paragraph, which is a lengthy one. Yeah, please. Uh, I was just thinking, uh, is the metaphor of a chicken and egg... Uh, Helpful here to understand this sin. Uh, for example, the source of the egg is the chicken, and if someone denies or kills the chicken, uh, then the egg cannot come, which is the forgiveness of our sins. So it, it, it's a kind of a. Is that a connection or is that a metaphor that's helpful? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think the way you described it, it's helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, and then you said there were degrees of it. You can resist the Holy Spirit, so you can put the chicken out in the field where it doesn't have any feed or anything, so they can't produce the egg, maybe, but it's not denying it completely. Mm-hmm. But if you exile it or you, you know, just deny it exists, uh, you can't get the forgiveness of sin, which is the egg. That's what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Kind mm-hmm. of a stretch, maybe, but that's... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a yeah, an expansion of the of the analogy there. Yeah. At uh, the first paragraph on one hundred and seven, where it says Augustine points out that for that sin to be so, that is unforgiven against the Holy Spirit, that it cannot be forgiven. Sorry, uh, final impenitent. Impenitence must be added. So, I, I'm sorry, I'm just not tracking with where you are. Are you at the top of 107? Um, yeah, in that paragraph there, uh, where, it, where it says Augustine points out. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So anyway, from that I, I gather that, um, is this correct, that, that Keminence is saying um, that up to the moment of death... Um, you, you actually could repent from that sin against the Holy Spirit. That, is that what's being said there? Um, I, I think in order... Let, let me just read it out loud for the sake of those online anyway, and then for the sake of my own cognition and answer here. I'm going to start toward the top of the page. But since repentance unto remission of sins is preached also to them that resist the Holy Spirit... Examples being Acts 7 and Luke 24. So preaching to those that resist the Holy Spirit. And Stephen also prays for them. Acts 7. 
Augustine points out that for that sin to be so against the Holy Spirit that it cannot be forgiven, final impenitence must be added, since, namely, a man perseveres and dies in it without repentance. Therefore, we can thus judge a posteriori very correctly and surely regarding that sin against the spirit that is not forgiven, namely since God makes known his righteous judgment against the man and goes astray in such sin and dies without any repentance. So where someone blasphemes the, the Holy Spirit and the, the work and office of the Holy Spirit and dies in that state, you can say, yeah, definitively that was a sin against the Holy Spirit. I suppose the only mileage you'd want to get on the other side of the coin is that if someone fears that they've committed the sin against the Holy Spirit and desires to be forgiven, that's evidence that they haven't, <laughs> right? And that's an, that's an important and comforting point, that if you would like, if you, even, if you're, even if you've said horrible things, you know, in some dark night against the Holy Spirit and against his office and work and called God the devil and the devil God and everything else. If you desire to be forgiven of such things, there is forgiveness for those things. It's not the, the nature of the sin of the Holy, against the Holy Spirit is that sort of persisting against his office and work. Yeah. I mean, every sinner, it's illustrated in this point that every sinner at the end of his life has to say, I'm afraid of all my works. I'm afraid of my very being and existence. I have no hope but Jesus. I commend myself into his hands. I am yours. Save me from Psalm 119. And that's it. And if he won't, then that's the good and right thing. <laughs> and if, because he's good, I'm not. But I trust that he will, and I trust that, that's, that he hasn't gone to all the effort of taking on my flesh and my sins to die on the cross and sending his Holy Spirit and having that... Holy Spirit baptize me and preach to me and lead me to communion. I believe he hasn't done all of that in vain and uh, just in the end to damn me. So, <laughs> but that is, um, it's illustrative of the, of the essence of what it is to die in the faith. You know, Luther is famously said at the end of his life or had at least scribbled in a piece of paper in his jacket pocket or however the maybe semi-myth goes, I don't know how true any of this really is, but we are all beggars. And that's, that's, a, that's a profound and important idea is that when we go into death, if you want to be forgiven, you will be forgiven. Christ promises that he will, all who come to him, he will by no means cast out. That's the comfort. But we don't come to him presumptuously. We don't come to him arrogantly. There's a difference between he does not lie, you know, and I believe and, oh, I know I'm in. <laughs> you know, and let's, and let's see. Uh, I'll be interested to see who didn't make it. <laughs> that kind of arrogance is just really out of place and not expressive of a Christian piety, not expressive of how Christians die. Um, we die commending ourselves into the hands of the Lord. And that's, I mean, that, my point is that whether you think you've committed the sin against the Holy Spirit or whether you, you, know, you recount or the devil brings to mind all the sins of your, your youth and your lowest moments and whatever else, um, you're in the same boat as the rest of us. <laughs> right? You're in, the, you're in the same boat as every single saint who's ever lived. We have all committed sins for which we're 
deeply ashamed and deeply grieved and are worthy of damnation. And we have literally no hope but the goodness and the graciousness and the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. So we cling, we throw ourselves on his mercy and cling to that alone. So that's of great comfort, that if you desire that, Christ promises he will not cast you out. And you can be assured then that you haven't committed the sin against the Holy Spirit, if that's the state of your soul. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so the church is always viewed um, last rites, so to speak. So it's a rite of, um, we call it now in our modern language, commendation of the dying. So it is just a last service performed for that person, commending them. There's obviously prayers for their healing um, in that service, but also just an acknowledgement that whether healing comes or not, it looks like it's not likely to come we commend them into the hands of the Father. So there's prayers, there's blessings, there's reading of scripture, there's sermonizing, there's application, there's all these things that we do. Um, It's varied from time and place, but sometimes there's an anointing of oil, and that's where um, you get the language of extreme unction. So unction is anointing, and extreme doesn't mean like a lot of it. (laughs) It means at the end of one's life. (laughs) So a final anointing. Um, but again, so where would you go in the scriptures if you were trying to find a dominical command from our Lord that says you have to anoint the dying? You wouldn't find that dominical command. You wouldn't find it at the level of baptize or at the level of uh, institution of the Lord's Supper. So for Lutherans, that's always been a second class or a second category apart from, say, baptism and the, the Lord's Supper. For Roman Catholics, it used to be, but increasingly that's not no longer the case. Increasingly, they just kind of blur all seven of their sacraments together and try to put them all on the same level, which would take us a long time to discuss how they think about grace differently and how they got there. Um, but suffice it to say, there is the biblical example in the book of James of anointing the sick, the elders, the pastors coming and anointing the sick. And so we have a biblical example of this. And so we Lutherans do it as well, sometimes with the oil, sometimes not. I don't really care about, nobody really cares about the oil except for people who have made this something that is well beyond what the scriptures themselves teach. Yeah. So that last rites, um, and that is a blessed way to die. It's a blessed way. We don't think about it because you go, oh, I just want to die of a heart attack in my sleep. Oh, I just want a semi to hit me and I won't even know what happened. I'll just wake up in heaven. Uh, it's interesting because historically these kinds of things would be seen as evil deaths. That is that to say they're sudden and they come upon us without having opportunity to um, get everything wrapped up. A blessed death historically is you see it coming and you have opportunity to get it all wrapped up. You have opportunity. I mean, we should be striving to be at amends and at peace with everyone anyway. But the reality is we're not always. There, there's maybe a final conversation, at least, that should be had. And so a blessed death, historically speaking, is one in which you see it coming. You can confess your faith in Christ to your family and to whomever else. You can make amends, get things in order, etc. And um, you can receive that that service of commendation, that final rite. Um, if there's oil involved, that extreme, that last anointing, that extreme unction. Um, that's all a blessed way to go. Um, 
as opposed to how we Americans tend to think about it. I just don't want to feel any pain, which is just also very cowardly, no offense, but it's just very cowardly. You're only going to die once. Do it well. Enjoy it. I mean, nobody gets to heaven and is like, you know, oh gosh, I, you know, I, I don't know. Nobody gets to heaven and is like, oh, wish I would have suffered less. I wish I would have tried less. I wish I would have done less. I wish I would have lived less. I wish I would have just crawled into a ball and laid on my couch. Nobody gets into heaven and thinks that way. You get into heaven and you're like, why didn't I risk more? Why didn't I do more? Why was I lazy? Why was I fearful? Why was I doubtful? Why did I have such little faith? So to live robustly in the light of Christ and boldly go into death. And, you know, plus, don't you just hate death? The scriptures personify death. So they make death into an adversary and an opponent, and a person. Uh, we're, we despise death. We hate death. And you should see it that way. You should see it as a final contention with an enemy. So how do you want to go? You want that enemy to just wipe you out? I don't. I mean, I think that's an evil death. If that's the Lord's will, so be it. I mean, who cares? This is all above my pay grade. Maybe I will get hit by the semi, right? So, oh, Pastor Rody had an evil death. Okay, well, whatever. It's all in the hands of the Lord. So I don't really care that much. But if I had my choice, I'd rather look that enemy in the eye. And as he thinks he's beating me, stealing one sense after another from me, I'm going to con- confess Christ and know that I'm beating him. I'm going to confess Christ. And it's sort of like, just as you strangled Christ, he was strangling you. The tighter you gripped his neck, the tighter he gripped your neck. And in fact, when you killed him, he destroyed your power by that, by that very act of you killing the one who is life. He destroyed your power and broke it forever. And that power of Christ, that indwelling of Christ is in me. It's in you. And I want to relish that. I mean, I kind of am now. So even if the semi hits me, I'm already relishing it. But I want to go toe-to-toe with death, like, you know, that David and Goliath thing. (laughs) There's no way I'm going to beat him with my own strength. But with the strength of the Lord and the victory that he gives, absolutely. And to make that confession against death, stand defiant over death, you know, that's going to be the, um, that's just a foretaste of what's to come, where our shame is transformed into our glory. We're not forever and ever sinners that were forgiven, you know, kind of scumbags that were left in by the, let in by the skin of our teeth. That's not how God does things. We're going to be those who overcame sin, conquered sin. We're going to be those who overcame death, who triumphed over this impossible, monstrous Goliath. We're going to be those who overcame Satan and all his hordes. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The God of peace will crush him under your feet also, St. Paul says. We're going to die and rise as conquerors. And I look at death as like, it's like kind of the final salvo of God, you know. Remember there's that imagery of the father with the arrows? And he's shooting the arrows and his children are the arrows, his sons are the arrows that you're sending out into the world, into the heart of the world. It's just beautiful imagery. But by extension, we're the, uh, we're the arrows of God that he shoots out into the to the world. You know, Christ is that chief arrow. That's why he sets his face like flint. That's at least part of it, is he is the, the arrow that pierces to the heart of the devil. But God sends us like arrows out and so, right, you, you know, you're careening into the heart of sin and you're conquering it through the blood of Christ. You're careening into the heart of death and you're conquering it by faith in the risen one. You're careening into the heart of Satan and you're piercing that heart through by overturning his entire reign and kingdom through the Holy Spirit. 
So this is, I mean, this is who we are and what we're doing and the boldness with which we should live and die and face these things. So, yeah, sorry for the little mini sermon, but away with this cowardly idea of like, oh, I hope it doesn't hurt. Like, come on. Come on. Ridiculous. All right, well, that's enough on that. Yes, sir. Yeah, talking about the um, sin of presumption, is it? I know it's good to claim promises that are in the word of, in the Bible. However, I also see an attitude that pastors saying, "I, I'm binding this. Uh, um, this you said in the Bible, and I bind you. You must, you know, fulfill this promise." Mm-hmm. And it's it's almost like a claim claim it type of thing. Is there a danger when you, you know, read? like so-called promises in the Bible and claim it for yourself, even though it's scriptural, but coming to the attitudes that God, you wrote it down, and then you have to fulfill it. You know that attitude? Yeah, yeah I, you know, I, I think I kind of missed the point. I'm sorry. Could you, could you just oh, okay, restate? Okay. Would quick? it be presumptuous to actually presumptuous. Open, open up the word of God? Yes. You said it, and you have to do it. Yes, okay, so so holding God to his promises is a good thing. Yes. Even when he acts against his promise. Right. I mean, being haughty or arrogant or something like that, we can set that aside. Maybe that's where you're getting at with... Yeah, and so is there a thin line between holding God's promises in the Word and then... And God, you have to. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to beat God in some sort of like battle of intellect or will, right? right? <laughs> I mean, so, like, like you can't really live like a scoundrel, but then say, "Hey, God, you promised to to do this, so I'm holding you to your promise." I mean, like he's not going to have a comeback to that. Like he's going to be like, "Oh, I guess you got me there." So yeah, I, 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 I mean, I see your point that we, this could be misused by the flesh in an abusive and foolish way. God is not mocked. God is not deceived. Those would be good things to put in place. Now, as soon as all that said, though, the essence of faith is holding God to his promises and clinging to those promises. And God delights when we hold him to his promises. So that's why I said no arrogance, no humility, or no haughtiness, just humility, just faithfulness. But that's the whole nature of the Old Testament. And remember that beautiful, beautiful section in Hebrews where the refrain is, these died having not obtained the promises. I mean, they died holding God to... Just think about how astonishing that is. God says this is going to happen, and to their dying breath, while everything's shutting down, they're like, I know he's going to do it. I know he's going to fulfill this. And it completely looks to the reason and all the senses like there's no way he's going to. And faith just shines on and goes, oh, absolutely. It's a done deal. It's just so beautiful, but it's a re... It's a re or an encapsulation, rather... Of the, of the entire Old Testament, of all the saints of old and all of us together, it's the essence of our faith is that God has promised that our sins are forgiven. Well, what's the evidence of that? I mean, there's really no evidence. You're still going to die. He's promised that death is going to be reversed. There's, there is evidence of that in Christ's resurrection, but it's kind of hard to get your hands on that. You've got to look at the evidence and apologetics and all the rest. What is the evidence that you're going to that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and that all the things that God has promised to give you and bless you with are in fact going to happen there's scant evidence of any of this and that's all by intention because God wants to be believed 
God wants to speak and have us believe his word, believe who he is, and believe that he wants good things for us, and to cling to those things, even in the face of the contrary, which death is pretty darn contrary, isn't it? God's saying, look, I've got all these blessings for you. And then he's like shutting down your body and causing or allowing pain and allowing death and decay. I mean, those two things are pretty darn contrary, aren't they? So there's whole, this whole con- that God and Luther's just brilliant on this. He's just fantastic. Um, that God makes a promise, frequently shows you how he's good and well disposed toward you and then immediately attacks and challenges that promise. So Luther's favorite way of talking about this, at least he talks about it with the most zeal, is Abraham and Isaac. So God promises against all reason and against all sight and against all sense that his barren wife, who's also what, like in her 90s or something, is going to conceive and bear a son. Okay, but he brings this promise to fruition. Now, it takes too long, at least according to Abraham and Sarah, because they concoct this other plan that goes oh so well. So it takes too long. So God asserts his promise and then challenges the promise. If they would have just retained their faith in that promise, think of all the heartache up until the very present day that would have been avoided. So Then comes the promised son, Isaac, the miracle child. And um, as he grows up, then God says, take your son, your beloved son, your only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him. So God promises that through your son will come the seed, will be the one through whom all the nations of the earth are blessed, but kill him. So God opposes his own promise. Abraham is called the man of faith and is so celebrated as the father of the faithful because he has faith in the promise even when God himself opposes the promise. I mean, when God says to you, I love you, I forgive you, I want you to have eternal life and be with me forever, now here's cancer and slowly die. What is that but God's promise and God? opposing his promise. And that's the exercise and pattern of faith for all of God's people, that they all hold God to his promise despite his own opposition to that promise, that wrestling with God. Remember, that's the essence of what it means to be Israel. To be Israel of God, to be Israel of the faith, is to wrestle with God, that he would bless us, that he would give us his name. That's a pattern for our entire lives. Then again, as Hebrews says, these died having not received the promise. These died with the wrestling match still going on. And God will turn and bless. God will cease from opposing his own promises. The exercise of faith will be complete. And he will then fulfill those promises in full and beyond our wildest dreams. Yes, sir. So as we're thinking about both God's promises and as we're looking at this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as Christians, um, I was reminded of what we just read moments ago uh, in the formula of Concord. There's three sentences here that I think are really relevant. 
which say faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that the believer would stake his life on it a thousand times. This knowledge of and confidence in God's grace makes men glad and bold and happy in dealing with God and all creatures. And this is the work that the Holy Spirit performs in faith. So I'm reminded of that for two reasons. One is that sin against the Holy Spirit would sever us from that confidence and that boldness. Mm-hmm. Um, but two, as we are looking at our faith or concerned about our sins and our shortcomings, um, we do have this confidence uh, uh, on the account of Christ mm-hmm. through the work of the Holy Spirit where we don't need to be living in fear and looking over our shoulder, but rather in uh, humility and repentance, confessing our sins and knowing for certain that we have that forgiveness, and therefore we're empowered to live boldly in our lives uh, in society and in the church and in our families and so forth. Yeah, yeah, very very well said. And thank you for the Luther quotes from the formula. Just, Just a wonderful section of quotes. Absolutely. When it, when it comes to our certainty, the question is never, is my faith genuine? The question is never, have I committed the sin against the Holy Spirit? The question is never, like, do I have a clean heart? Or, a, you know, the, the question is, has God said and does he lie? Which really just can be collapsed into one. And that's then the basis of our confidence before God, as David was saying, and as Luther says. The basis of our confidence is in who God is and what he says. And in that, we can be sure and certain, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, thank you for that. Very good. Um, If there's nothing further on these six, I'd like to just move on to the conclusion in Chemnitz on page 108. And it's a lengthy paragraph In short, since the Holy Spirit works repentance, faith, and renewal through the ministry of the Word, and this is an important thing to point out, by the way, as an an aside, because look at this threefold work of the Holy Spirit. Repentance, faith, and renewal. That's the whole project that, of course, the Holy Spirit works in us repentance, contrition, and sorrow over our sins. Faith, that is, he preaches Christ to us, that our faith and trust is set in him and in his his goodness and his sacrifice for us. And then renewal is the third part. And I point that out because, of course, that's sadly become controversial in our day again. But this is also the work of the Holy Spirit, that he makes us new and continually renews us. And that is the threefold work of the Holy Spirit then here articulated by Chemnitz. Repentance, faith, and renewal. And he does so through the ministry of the word. If someone then despises, abuses, blasphemes, and persecutes the word of God, or impudently hinders and destroys the work of the Holy Spirit, who wants to arouse repentance, faith, and new obedience in us, He sins against the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. And that kind of people are to be solemnly and sharply rebuked and warned with how much danger these sins are connected. And if some of these repent and are converted by the grace of God, one must by no means hold or say that sins cannot be forgiven them. 
That's the key. So even if you are pretty darn well convinced that someone has committed that sin leading to death, that someone is, and, and you're not praying for them, and that's fine, if some of these repent and are converted by the grace of God, then one must not or must by no means hold or say that sins cannot be forgiven them. So the idea, I mean, anyone who desires to be forgiven has self-evidently not committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. Just reiterating that from a slightly different angle. Chemnitz continues, Moreover, since the sins by which one resists the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit have this special and characteristic mark that they harden the heart of man and make it obstinate, as Scripture testifies of Pharaoh, And God, in his judgment, usually censured them for the most part by forsaking, hardening, and blinding them and giving them over to a reprobate mind. All of this language can be found in Romans 11 and John 12. It happens that few, after they have persisted in these sins, return to a sounder understanding and are converted. Titus 3, 10 through 11. So, again, just to reiterate a simplistic point, the people who have truly committed the sin against the Holy Spirit don't care and can't be made to care. That's the nature of it. It's not that they're, oh, I committed this and I wish anything, I, you know, I wouldn't have committed this. No, that's repentance. Um, and it's evident that they didn't commit that sin in the first place. A, tr- a person who is truly hardened is a person who uh, doesn't, could care less. That's the nature of the hardening. Kenneth continues, yet, since God, according to his boundless mercy, sometimes leads also these back to the way and converts them. And it is not for us to prescribe limits to his most gracious will. Surely, as long as there is time, and it is the day of salvation, we neither ought nor can lightly charge anyone with the sin that is unforgivable. But if someone remains in this kind of sin to the end of his life, unmoved by repentance, and dies thus, the sentence of divine judgment revealed in the word declares that it was a sin or affront against the Holy Spirit, but of such a kind that is forgiven neither in this world nor in that which is to come. That is, as Chrysostom says, which is to be avenged in this life by hardening, in the other with eternal fire. So Hebrews 6 and 10. These passages mean for those who, after they once have been enlightened and made partakers of the Holy Spirit, knowingly and in obstinate wickedness, again deny the acknowledged truth and completely fall away from Christ, and so persevere therein that, as it were, they crucify Christ anew, regard him as a joke, and tread him underfoot, and insult the Spirit of grace. For those, I say, there remains no remission of sins, but the prospect of the judgment of God and of eternal fire. For they do not return to repentance, and without Christ there remains no offering for sins. For thus are these rather difficult passages of the epistle to the Hebrews explained by the context itself. We looked at those couple weeks ago. All right, that's the, uh, the sin against the Holy Spirit. Anything that we need to wrap up or so far so good?
In the context of this, uh, when the Bible says that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, so it, what, at what state was his heart or was he in? Was he in this uh, reprobate, hardened heart state? And, uh, or was God, I mean, how can we understand that scripture? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a, maybe a large, larger topic to do that full justice, maybe a study of, um, in particular, like say Romans 9 through 11 would be helpful to wrap our minds around that as well. But I think that it's safe to say that as Pharaoh rejects God, God hardens his heart into further rejection. That's maybe the safest, cleanest way to put it. And I think that that's fundamentally true, even if it's not always in the scriptures quite that simple. So God will punish unbelief with greater unbelief and obstinance with greater obstinance. He, um, his punishment, again, in keeping with Romans... Is the way it's not always the way we would think about it because it's true enough that God does punish with like through secular rulers, fines, imprisonment, death. It's true that God does punish um, in a in a punitive category, but what Hebrew, what Romans opens our eyes to is that God punishes sin by giving over to sin. So that's a different way of thinking and a different and not what we would maybe normally think of in the punitive category. He effectively says, uh, have it your way. Have it all your way. And lets you go into it. Um, now, in one, in one sense, his purposes may be strictly punitive. In the case of some, he may just say, hey, go all the way. But in, in other cases, it may be the prodigal son where you have to hit proverbial rock bottom, you have to find yourself in the, you know, covered in pig poop and desiring, you know, jealous of the food that they're eating before you can return to your father's house. So God lets you go all the way into the filth of your sins that you insist upon uh, so that one day you will come to yourself and be so thoroughly disgusted by it all you return to him. Um, So I don't preclude that purpose in God punishing sin with sin, nor do I preclude the punitive element that God says, fine, you want to be filthy, be filthy all the way. And so he he gives us over to our sinful desires, and it's part of that that progression that Paul talks about in Romans, where exchanging um, the glory of God for a love of the mere creature, and then from a love of creature and nature, into unnatural things, and those unnatural things compound and are, in a sense, a punishment unto themselves um, by their very doing. Uh, so he punishes sin with sin, and that's a he punishes a harden, hardness of heart with further hardening. Yeah. Okay, anything else we want to? You know, I think there's, um, there's, a, there's a way that God does not want to be feared. So John talks about this. Perfect love casts out all fear. But if we know who God is and his love for us in Christ Jesus, then fear is cast out. So there's a wrong way to fear God that should be cast out. A kind of, a kind of uh, unbridled terror 
which very quickly goes into resentment and hatred. That's precluded by who God is in Christ Jesus. But of course, there's a healthy kind of fear. As the Catechism puts it, that we fear love and trust in God. That filial fear. But I I do believe that the heart of that filial fear, that fear of sons, is the fear that God isn't a system and God isn't bound, you know, he doesn't bind himself in these ways that makes him manipulatable. So you can't, that is part of the fear is like, well, how, how far do I get to resist God before he punishes my sin with sin, with more sin? Or how far do I, how hard can I, you know, can I let my heart get nine out of ten hard? Right? And what, what's that level? Because if, then if it gets ten out of ten, I want to avoid that because it'll harden me further. The, the fear of God is recognizing that, he, that there is a mystery and there is a judgment. There is a, and this is anachronistic, or anachronistic, no, like an anthropomorphism, I think I mean, that, that God is a person with a personality with limits to his patience. He's not a, he's not a robot. He's not a system of doctrine. He's not a, a computer system where if you input... A, you get out B. So there, the, the, what that, I mean, that is the biblical revelation of God. And what that does is, it, and should do, is inspire a godly fear within us. And a godly terror of sinning against him. A godly terror of grieving the Holy Spirit. A, a godly terror of, of resisting and going one step too much where, where, you know, obviously he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but just because he's slow to anger doesn't mean he doesn't ultimately get there. <laughs> he can and will, and you and I don't have control over that. That immediately humbles us and puts us in a right, a right place of filial fear, the fear of sons over, uh, with their father. Um, you know, you, you know you're... So like a good, a good father, especially when you're a little kid... You know he's good, but you don't know that he's going to be good in the way you want him to be good all the time. <laughs> so you, otherwise that becomes a presumption. Oh, hey, my dad's always nice. When he tells me no, I can cross him because he's always nice. You know, and we do the same thing with God, just writ large. And a good father will at times seem draconian or unpredictable or scary to his children because this, when he says no and they go, oh, he's always nice, let's cross it, and there's a severe reaction or penalty, then there's a, there's a fear, a godly fear that's learned, right? And that's the same, that, that by analogy is the same relationship we have to our heavenly father. So we can't presume upon, oh, he's so gracious, he loves everyone, let me... He's got bigger fish to fry. Let me just go on sinning and presuming upon his grace. So that filial fear is an important aspect of um, who he is. So think also of this. I mean, I know it's mysteriously put or whatever, but it's right at the, it's right at the heart of this. With you there is forgiveness that you may be trampled, that you may be taken advantage of, that you may be gamed. <laughs> With you there is forgiveness that you may be Feared. So um, there, there is that, uh, that connection even with the forgiveness of God and the fear of God, the, the, son, the filial fear, the son's fear of the father. It's, it's all good. 
kind of terror of God and terror of his judgment and seeing him as wrathful as opposed to a wrathful judge as opposed to a gracious father unto us. Like that's the kind of fear that is cast out by perfect love. All right, that's it. Let's close for the day. We'll pick up next week with the sacraments of the New Testament in general, page 109. The Lord be with you.